The following introduction is a dramatic representation of a real event that took place at Teotihuacan. It is graphic and disturbing, so if you're a more sensitive person or children are within earshot, you may want to make a decision about whether you want to listen to it or not. Also going forward, there will be more graphic descriptions of events that take place in later cultures because that's just how the culture develops. There's not a lot I can do about it, it's just the history that's there. I thank you for your understanding, and please enjoy the podcast. You awake with a start, and there's commotion all around you. Your head is foggy, your body aches, and you're bound and gagged? You try desperately to reclaim your senses and look around. In the dim light, you see what looks like a dead ruler being positioned in his final resting place. The officials are chanting prayers, and there are at least ten people tied up like you are, and they are every bit as desperate. You're in a giant stone room with only torchlight to mitigate the darkness. Why are you witnessing this? Where are you? More officials enter, this time accompanied by an array of wild animals. You think to yourself, great, am I going to be fed to animals? One of the officials produces an obsidian blade and in one masterful stroke cuts a jaguar's throat right in front of you. The jaguar flails helplessly while his precious lifeblood empties onto the floor. Suddenly it dawns upon you, I'm going to be sacrificed. Clarity returns instantly. You were an elite warrior at El Mirador when the Teotihuacanos attacked. Everyone in the city knew they were coming, but there was nothing more they could do. You had helped dismantle temples and other buildings to hastily erect defensive walls, but to no avail. The attack was swift and merciless, as the Teotihuacans were known to be. They killed warriors, archers, young and old alike, even slaying the few unarmed families that had not yet abandoned the city as they attempted to flee for their lives. But you, they took you as a prisoner. You were beaten and starved, stripped of all of your dignity, and now, this. The jaguar is now motionless, but the other animals seem to know what their fate will be as well. They try desperately to find a way out, but all they find is the glint of volcanic glass just before it finishes them. You resolutely look the officials in the eyes. You are a warrior from El Mirador, and you are determined to die with what little dignity you may have left. In their eyes, you see pure evil. As a warrior, you know there's a stark difference between a man doing something awful because he has to and those who find their ecstasy in violence. The officials took great pleasure in this work. The animals were done, the humans were next. There were those trying to beg for mercy and they were decapitated first. Those that resigned to their fate were the next to meet with death. And then there were two you and another captive barely alive. You brace yourself for the end, thinking of those you love, and then nothing. You force open your eyes and watch as the officials file out of the structure, leaving you and the almost dead man behind. In your confusion, you think you've cheated death, but reality deals you another rotten hand as you watch the only way out being quickly filled with earth and rubble and sealed shut. Why could they have not just killed me? What is this final cruelty that I must be subjected to?
the man next to you expires. Lucky bastard. And that just leaves you in complete darkness, sealed in this tomb, beaten, starved, dehydrated. Your lungs burn as you struggle for air. You didn't deserve this. None of these victims did, but it doesn't matter now. You close your eyes and pray for the sweet release of death. At the end of my last episode, I spoke of the unenviable task I would have of sorting out who makes the cut and who doesn't when we go from pre-classic to the classic era. And after further review, I decided that Teotihuacan is just too good to pass up. So I decided to do an episode on just this city and its people. If you make it through all of my torturous pronunciations of Mesoamerican gods, I will reward you at the end with chocolate, or chocolato, as it was called by the Aztecs. The people of this city were complex and bridged the gap between pre-classic and classic period, so it seems right that we stop and take stock of them. On the one hand, they were highly aggressive, militaristic, and were very enthusiastic when it came to human sacrifice. On the other hand, they liked to sip hot chocolate and carve butterflies into stone. Most people like that today are incarcerated for the safety of themselves and for the good of the community. It was like a city filled with Geminis, if you can imagine. Teotihuacan means the city where gods are born, and the city really lives up to the name. It's important to note that they didn't give their city that title. It was given to them by the Aztecs, who really had a civ crush on these people. We don't know what the inhabitants of Teotihuacan called themselves, but the Maya called them Pu. My grade school sense of humor thinks that's hysterical, but in this sense, Pu, P-U-H, means the place of reeds. It sounds so misleadingly tranquil. Teotihuacan was the largest city in the New World with roughly 150,000 people at its peak around 600 AD, and it was the sixth largest city in the world. The largest city in the world at the time was Constantinople at over 500,000 people. And for anyone who just said, don't you mean Istanbul? A, that's very hurtful to those of us who love Roman history, and B, that wouldn't happen for another 853 years. When I said in a previous episode that the El Miradorans had no chill, well, the people of Teotihuacan make them look like shiftless loafers. Teo dominated the region and all the peoples that lived there for centuries, including the Maya. By the way, sometimes I'm going to use Teo to shorten the name of Teotihuacan. Located in a valley near Mexico City, Teo was mostly an urban area that received a boon of farmer inhabitants when the city of Quiquilco collapsed somewhere in the second century BC after a series of volcanic eruptions. That boosted the food production and the reproductive rates of the city. But this was not a make love, not war kind of people. No, we are a far cry from the peace-loving Olmecs, and we're now entering a highly militaristic culture. Let me just say, if the Toltec and the Aztec both revere you, you probably don't play well with others. Among the items found at Teotihuacan are the many human sacrificial areas that reflect the hard-nosed, ritualistic, and violent nature of these people. Saburo Sugiyama of the University of Japan, who coordinated an archaeological dig in 2004 with Ruben Cabrera of Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History, said, It is hard to believe that the ritual consisted of clean symbolic performances. It is most likely 
that the ceremony created a horrible scene of bloodshed for the sacrificed people and animals. By the way, every time I mention archaeologists in this presentation, I'm likely referring to Saburo. He is one of the most knowledgeable people there are on the subject of Teotihuacan. Two of the more prominent features in Teotihuacan are the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon. Completed around 200 AD, the Pyramid of the Sun is the largest pyramid ever built in the Americas, standing almost 220 feet tall, 740 feet wide, and measuring 720 feet in length. I wonder if the Teotihuacanos were inspired by Ladanta when building the pyramids. I could see them wanting to outdo the El Miradorians, and instead of one giant pyramid, they decided to build two giant pyramids. Then, for good measure, let's just sprinkle a whole bunch of lesser pyramids all throughout the complex to drive the point home. Remember, they had just wiped out El Mirador 100 years prior. Anyway, parts of this pyramid were damaged by a clownish explorer named Leopoldo, who we'll talk about later. Those parts had to be restored, and those restorers came upon a 400-pound stone sculpture of the fire god, Huehue Teotl, at the base of the temple, as well as some burnt offerings and other artifacts. Huehue Teotl is the precursor to the Aztec fire god, Xio Tecutli, and the former is representative of a wrinkled old man, while the latter is a vigorous young man. The names even have two meanings. Huehue Teotl means old god, and Xio Tecutli means the lord of turquoise. The Aztec version of this god was dedicated to purification and world renewal by means of fire. Would you expect anything less from the Aztecs? But while that was the meaning for the Aztecs, it is unclear what he specifically meant to the Teotihuacanos. What is clear is that Huehue Teotl is one of the most often represented deities at Teotihuacan, so his significance to these people is undeniable. His images portray an old man with wrinkles on his face, no teeth, he's sitting with his legs crossed and holding a cooking vessel on his head. The cooking vessel is often decorated with rhomboid figures, which are like slanted squares, and crosses, symbolizing the four directions of the world, with a god sitting in the middle. The Pyramid of the Sun is built directly above this underground shrine, and it is now known that upon completion, the pyramid was dedicated to this fire god. The Pyramid of the Moon stands at the north end of the Avenue of the Dead, which is another prominent feature of Teotihuacan. It stands 141 feet tall and was built in multiple phases, finally finished in 250 AD. There is a 10-foot statue of the Great Goddess at the foot of the pyramid. The initial person that found it in 1884 was a self-identified archaeologist, Leopoldo Batres. Cool name, bro. He thought there were tombs inside it, and it turns out he was probably right. So to get at those tombs, Leopoldo did what any careful and conscientious person would do. He dynamited the top of the pyramid. Too bad he wasn't strapped to the pyramid when it was detonated. These careless acts resulted in the pyramid having to be reconstructed, and no more archaeologists were allowed back to the site until 1998. When they did come back, the archaeologists dug their way into the base of the pyramid and found a tomb. The team had speculated that there would be many tombs inside of the pyramid, but the first tomb they found was located at the base. The occupant was male, with obsidian and jade burial items, as well as victims of both human and animal sacrifice. 
Many of the victims were buried alive, and the people were restrained like captives, while others were decapitated. Covered in stucco, built with large blocks and using Therogordo Mountain as a guide to dictate symmetry, the Pyramid of the Moon was constructed so that the top of the pyramid is perfectly aligned with the notch in the mountain. Pyramids were seen as sacred symbols of mountains, and the city was planned around the progression of stars and solar alignments. The 15.5 degree offset of True North actually aligned the city to observe two major solar events, similar to our solstices, to mark the passage of time and keep a calendar of 260 days or 13 months of 20 days each. The Teotihuacan used a base 20 system of mathematics that was common in Mesoamerica, while by contrast, we use the base 10 counting system, though we get our calendar and measure the passage of time with a base 60 system that was developed by Mesopotamian cultures. The Avenue of the Dead runs 2.5 miles beginning at the Plaza of the Moon and ending near the base of the mountains. The avenue bisects the city with elite living quarters and lesser pyramids lining either side and it was the main thoroughfare of Teotihuacan. There are also 2,000 apartment compounds that held 50 to 100 people each, and all of these compounds had multiple workshops in them. Most of the apartments were for the working class, but those closer to the ceremonial centers were richly appointed with murals running throughout the buildings. These were for the elite class only. It was the first foray into mercantilism in Mesoamerica. A mercantile system, a term coined by Adam Smith, dominated the Western European economies from the 16th to almost the 19th century. This political economy system seeks to enrich a country by restraining imports and enhancing exports. The Teotihuacan people were all involved in creating a high volume of trade goods for the state, operating as a sweatshop does today. As you may have suspected, the city was highly organized and tightly ruled by the elites. The most common workshops, though, were based around obsidian processing, from rough cores to usable items like knives, spear tips, arrowheads, darts, etc., for use in their military. Remember, they have that very specific kind of obsidian that is green instead of black, and it would be their calling card in whatever city they conquered. And they conquered a lot of them. They even bullied our friends at Kaminal Huyu when that city was in their prime, resulting in an entire acropolis built in the Teotihuacan style of architecture called Talud Tablero. This is a repeating series of sloping bases and overhanging tabletop looking living quarters. There's an example on my companion website, www.mezoplus.net, if you want to see what it looks like. One of the apartment compounds along the Avenue of the Dead is called Atatelco, and it boasts intricately painted murals of warrior classes that prefigure the Aztec Jaguar and Eagle Warriors by at least a thousand years. There are grisly depictions of jaguars eating hearts and severed heads that coincide with what we know about the vicious cruelty of the sacrificial offerings throughout Teotihuacan. This wasn't metaphoric or fantasy. This was their reality, and attending actual sacrifices was nearly as common for the Teos as bowling on a Tuesday night is for some of us. The flagship brand of warrior the Teotihuacans used most often was the Tlaloc Venus Warrior with an atlatl. An atlatl was a spear-throwing device 
that increases torque and delivers a projectile that is much more accurate and with greater velocity than just using your arm. The Venus we're talking about here is not the Botticelli-style beautiful nude woman on the half-shell you may be thinking of. The Venus, for the Teos, was a menacing god called the Dawn Lord, and was one of the four gods who held up the sky. Also, the Dawn Lord holds the record for the longest name in Mesoamerican pantheon. Coming in at 21 letters, here is my best attempt to pronounce it. Tlaquizcalopantacutli. But make no mistake, this is no benign god of morning light. This is a war god. According to Aztec mythology, the Dawn Lord attacked the newly created sun on its first day by throwing atlatl spears at him. Obviously, he did not prevail, but what kind of person tries to attack the sun? He's also got a darker twin called Xototl, who is a god of sickness and deformity, and both the Dawn Lord and Xototl are aspects of Quetzalcoatl. Are you with me so far? Anyway, the sun got big mad at the Dawn Lord for trying to kill him, so he responded by throwing back some darts of his own at the Dawn Lord and struck him in the head, which then turned the Dawn Lord into a god of coldness and stone. That's only half the imagery. <laughs> the other half is the storm god, Tlaloc, or at least an early version of him, and he is not for the faint of heart. He wields water, thunder, and lightning as weaponry. So, you have a war god who is related to the feathered serpent and represents coldness and stone, coupled with an aggressive water god who lashes out with thunder, lightning, and floods. I'm willing to bet nobody wanted any of that smoke. The Teos use this fearsome military to conquer far-reaching areas of land and intimidate surrounding cultures. In modern-day terms, the Teos ruled, influenced, or bullied the southern half of Mexico on through the Yucatan Peninsula, Guatemala, Belize, and into parts of Honduras and Nicaragua. Another important complex at the site, this area contained the Temple of Quetzalcoatl, the Feathered Serpent. The temple stands 72 feet tall and is situated in a sunken plaza surrounded by lesser buildings in an area called Ciudadela. Ciudadela means citadel, and that's how I will refer to it from here on out. Since we're calling all of the other monuments by their English translation, and no one is giving out prizes for correct pronunciation, I don't see a need to keep using a difficult moniker. The temple stands at the east end of the plaza, directly across from the Pyramid of the Moon. The temple is replete with feathered serpent head sculptures jutting out from the terraces of the temple, similar to the cover art on my podcast. We're talking around 260 of these things, each with an open mouth that one could put something in. But why were they put there? And what would you put in their mouths? A Mayan calendar count called a Zulkin is also 260 days and is used to mark the days for religious ceremonies. It is believed that the Teotihuacanos were using a marker in the mouth of each feathered serpent to track when the next religious ceremony would take place. Kind of like a 20-day rolling advent calendar. When the marker hit the right day, the populace would report to the plaza and participate in a ceremony. The Temple of Quetzalcoatl is the first known major building dedicated to the feathered serpent in Mesoamerica. The temple also introduces the rain god Tlaloc, but he's not really Tlaloc, just the feathered serpent dressed as Tlaloc. And keep in mind, Tlaloc really isn't a thing yet, it's just the storm god who is the precursor to Tlaloc. 
The temple appeals to the warlike nature of the Teotihuacanos, and in the 1980s, archaeologists tunneling into the temple made a grisly find at the temple's base. Any guesses as to what it was? Yes, more victims of human sacrifice, including men and women, some of whom were warriors. The warriors were adorned with necklaces made out of human jawbones and obsidian. They were all sacrificed at the same time, and they seemed to be Teotihuacano people. I don't know their culture well enough, but one can imagine the conversation with these poor people prior to the event. Hey, Moon Serpent, the ruler wants you down at the temple today for the big dedication ceremony. We got a great honor for you, but you might want to make sure the life insurance is paid up before you head out. While extraordinarily gifted in terms of engineering, mathematics, and artistry, these people were also just plain brutal. Also bear in mind, this wasn't your garden variety five or ten sacrificial victims. We're talking about hundreds of people at this one site alone. While the structure alone is amazing to look at, what lies inside is astounding. In what seems to be a nod to the underworld, archaeologists in the early 2000s found a tunnel running under the temple in much the same fashion as the Pyramid of the Sun. While the Pyramid of the Sun's tunnels were naturally occurring lava tubes, this tunnel system was completely man-made. In one of the chambers, they found several highly polished orbs of gerocyte with a clay center, for which they have absolutely no explanation. The orbs were found in a room choked with artifacts, including seashells, jaguar bones, pottery, wooden masks covered with jade and quartz, necklaces, rings, human figurines with crystals for eyes, sculptures of jaguars, and ick preserved human flesh. All of the items were reportedly placed intentionally and with purpose, but back to the familiar refrain, we don't really know what it all means. Further in the tunnel, we're about 55 feet below the temple now, was a chamber whose walls and ceiling were found to have been carefully impregnated with mineral powder composed of magnetite, pyrite, and hematite, providing a special illumination to the place. One can imagine that it gave the effect of standing under the stars. There were pools of liquid mercury that represented lakes, and four green stone statues adorned with ceremonial garments and beads, with precious stones for eyes, staring in a contemplative manner upward at the man-made stars. The Teotihuacans were capable of making such beautiful and artistic works like this, and you have to take it on balance with their warlike nature and the human sacrifice that also come along with the Teotihuacanos. Throughout this episode, we've talked about different gods and how they relate to the Teotihuacanos. Uh, I want to revisit some of, the, some of these gods and just kind of offer a little more clarification. The feathered serpent, he can really mean anything from a god of renewal to the god of wind. Could be the god of sky or of military title. Uh, he could be linked to rulership, and there's several other options that he could be. He's ubiquitous in Mesoamerican cultures across all time periods, and most famously known as Quetzalcoatl from the Aztecs. The fire serpent named Xiacoatl, the name means turquoise snake and represents time, fire, and celestial bodies. There's the great goddess. She's the chief goddess for the Teotihuacans. She is only found in Teo with a large headdress and a rectangular block over her mouth. 
She's associated with water, plants, and is considered a deity of the underworld. She is often depicted with spiders as well, leading one archaeologist to refer to her as the Spider Woman. Storm God. We talked about him before. He's the precursor to Tlaloc, and he was uh, the god of rain, storms, and wielded power of thunder and lightning. The later Aztec would sacrifice children to Tlaloc by means of drowning, believing that the children's tears would ensure the rain needed to produce a bountiful harvest. The Palace of Quetzalcoatl faces the Avenue of the Dead and is located just southwest of the Pyramid of the Moon. Quetzalcoatl means feathered butterfly, and these butterfly figures are carved into the stone pillars of the palace. Richly decorated with wall paintings, geometric patterns, and other carved stone pillars, the palace demonstrates the beautiful artistic minds that complement the aggressive, militaristic side of these complex people. In the courtyard, the stonework is eclectic, and the irregular cut blocks are cobbled together to make a beautiful and cohesive unit. The palace coincides with an era of heavy military expansionism under the banner of the warrior owl carrying an atlatl. The warrior owl may have been spear thrower owl, an influential ruler during this time. As you may have suspected, there are te- there is a temple under the palace. It is called the Temple of the Feathered Conch, which is representative of the wind, presumably the wind an owl soars upon. The complex was discovered in 1962 by archaeologist Jorge Acosta, who is probably no relation to me, but as an Acosta, I'll just go ahead and say he's a distant relative. After a long famine, due to exhausting their resources through overpopulation and drought, the citizens rose up and torched the elite rulers' homes and abandoned the city. It was later taken over by the Toltec and then occupied by the Aztec. There's still so much more to Teotihuacan, and I hope you investigate it further. These people, while infamously brutal, were also meritoriously refined in their artwork and architectural expression. As you have kept up your end of the bargain and listened to my excruciating butchery of the Nahuatl language, it's time for me to reward you with some chocolate. The intensely sweet hot chocolate you may have drank as a child that came from a white package with a foil interior and maybe some tiny freeze-dried marshmallows is definitely not the same thing as what the Mayan or Aztecs drank. Yes, they may have sweetened the drink with a little honey and the drink was rich and delicious, but it did not have milk in it, and it was also spicy with hot chilies being a common ingredient. While there's evidence dating back 5,300 years to the earliest uses of cacao, The Olmec are credited with starting the craze, while the Mayan perfected it and the Aztec restricted it, unless, of course, you were part of the elite. Montezuma II reportedly drank gallons of the stuff from pure golden vessels throughout the day, and that could be seen as conspicuous consumption, since cacao beans were quite expensive. Kind of a, hey, look how powerful and rich I am kind of thing. I imagine it would translate today like buying a yacht or a private jet or whatever it is that wealthy people do. Indeed, cacao was an important trade item through Mesoamerican culture and was literally a form of currency for the Aztecs. In the 16th century, it was recorded by the Spanish what the going rate for particular items were in terms of cacao beans. A slave was worth 100 beans, 
as was a turkey hen or a canoe filled with vessels of fresh water, a rabbit was worth about 10 beans, and the tender affections of a prostitute was also 8 to 10 beans, depending on how well you bargain. Christopher Columbus's son Ferdinand recounted that the natives greatly valued the beans, and when they were brought on board my ship together with all their other goods, I observed that when any of these beans fell, they all stooped to quickly pick them up, as if an eyeball had fallen out. If I were ever to write a book, it would be called Snark Across the Ages, and it would just be filled with smart aleck quotes like this. Cacao is processed very similar to coffee beans. It is harvested from trees, fermented, shelled, dried, roasted, and then ground into a paste and mixed with hot water and the aforementioned spices and then sweetness if desired. The fermentation and roasting parts are essential as they quell the bitterness and draw out the flavors of the bean. The Maya were a liberal bunch and the chocolate drink was available to everyone of every social class. They believed it was a gift from the gods and should be enjoyed by everyone so you can imagine that everyone had their own little spin on how to make it. The Aztecs, on the other hand, restricted the drink to only the elite, and if you were the poor sucker that had to make hot chocolate for Montezuma, you had better get it right the first time, or you would be labeled as dishonorable and would be executed post-haste. No pressure, though. The drink is actually a pretty healthy thing, as prepared by the Mesoamericans. Cacao is rich in antioxidants, iron, magnesium, and calcium. It also gives you a little boost from the naturally occurring caffeine, and the capsaicin from the chilies boosts metabolism and controls hunger. Hot chocolate was likewise considered an aphrodisiac, and anyone who's ever given their loved one chocolate on Valentine's Day is unwittingly participating in this belief. Once Europe got a hold of it, they did what Europeans of the time were great at. They hijacked the product as their own, and then proceeded to enslave countless people to work on countless plantations to satisfy their demand for chocolate. Nowadays, nearly two-thirds of the world's cocoa is produced in Africa, and the growers are at the mercy of a seemingly merciless system. Cocoa futures are bought and sold in an alarmingly unregulated manner that can make prices fluctuate wildly for the growers. It is estimated that no more than 5% of all cocoa futures bought are actually representative of physical trade making it a relatively unstable speculator's market. Personally, I think Dora the Explorer said it best when she said, Bate, bate, chocolate. So cook up your best version of chocolato and cruise on over to www.mesoplus.net. That's www.mesoplus.net to check out my latest updates on the companion website for this podcast. While you are there, please consider donating to this little project so I can keep going and you can keep enjoying. Thank you so much for listening. It really means the world to me, and I sincerely enjoy making these podcasts for you. Be sure to join me next time on Mesoamericana Plus when we delve into the classic period, this time for real, and learn why it's considered the golden age of the Maya.